In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Ivor Brick joins us this week on Money Tales. Ira's family created what became the oldest children's clothing store in the United States. The neighborhood it was located in changed dramatically over the decades. As Ira describes it, the town became rough, had crime problems, and people were scared to shop there. During its 90th year, Ira made the difficult decision to close the store, and he decided to move to a new state. Ira's big dream was to open a retail store of his own in his new area. He created a business plan, and the business plan spoke to him. It said no. As a result, Ira had to rethink his identity and find a new path. Ira went on to run the UMass Family Business Center for 25 years, helping people solve their family business challenges through educational forums, cartoons, plays, radio, roundtables, advice columns, and more. He currently coaches and trains leaders and managers using a personality assessment and practical conversations to help teams and people be more productive and satisfied at work and in life. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Ira brings to this conversation. First, how getting hit by a car when he was a young boy proved to be a pivotal money lesson. Second, how he understood the gravity of being a business owner when his dad gave him half the family business and then told him about a big bill they'd have to pay. And third, how working in your family's business should be a choice, not a requirement that makes you feel trapped. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now onto our conversation with Ira Brick. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cammie, and I'm here with Sandy, my co-host. Hi, Cammie. I'm just back from a visit to my parents. How'd that go, Sandy? It was really fun. We had some great catch-up time and a couple of important money conversations. Are you willing to share? Yes, yes. So unfortunately, my father's experiencing some health challenges, and that's really forced the conversation to talk in a refreshed way about their estate planning. And I used the opportunity of the in-person visit to make sure that my parents knew where all their documents were and that I knew where they were. I didn't have recent copies. So mom's going to follow up with her estate planning attorney and really just kind of go through things to make sure that they... And I, on behalf of my siblings and myself, know where things are so that in the future, when we need to jump into action and help out in a big way, everyone will be prepared. 
So it was a good conversation overall, but I have to say, it's really hard for me to get out of advisor mode and get into oldest (laughs) child mode because they're not quite the same roles. They aren't, but you probably need to turn on advisor roles sometimes with parents. My family and I have gone through something similar in the last few years, and it's so important knowing where all those documents are. Well, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Ira Brick. It's wonderful to be talking with you on Money Tales. It's great. It's so nice to be here. Please introduce yourself and share with us two to three pivotal moments that really influenced you. Okay. Well, I am Ira Brick. I live in Amherst, Massachusetts. I'm originally a New Yorker, as are probably a third of people that live in Amherst, Massachusetts. I grew up in a family business. I have my earliest memories were working in my family's children's clothing store, which I later ran for many years as an adult. But I think my early memories are just child laborer working for $5 for a long day of doing whatever my parents wanted me to do. And I just remember one day working really hard for five bucks and crossing Sunrise Highway in Long Island to buy comic books with that five bucks and getting hit by a car and winning $5,000, which today I would have won a million. But at the time I was thinking I could have worked for a thousand hours, (laughs) but I just (laughs) earned in one second. That's what was going through your mind? How underpaid I was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we hope you were unscathed from the accident. Yeah. And I actually learned a lot of my work ethic from just childhood labor in my own store and then in restaurants when I was 15. I went out and got my working papers and I could write a book about everything I learned. Let's go back to that time as a young boy. And I love the story of the family business and it goes back generations. We always like to know like, Did the family talk about money? What were the conversations you were all were having? Well, my father, this was his dream. He grew up above a general store near Kennedy Airport, before Kennedy Airport. And it was run in a very communist style. My grandfather would say to him and my father and his four sisters, whenever you need cash, there's the register. But when I need you, get your tuchas downstairs. And it equated to from each according to his ability to each according to his need. And I grew up with that same kind of feeling, even though I could work for less than 50 cents an hour, I knew that what I needed, my family would supply. It felt very plentiful. I mean, just one other story about the store was once a year for three days, we had dollar days where people would line up around the block to come get everything that we were hiding in the basement and hoping to get rid of on dollar day. And my father had four sisters. They would all come with their four husbands and they would not get paid a penny. They'd bring all kinds of Jewish delights and just work for free. And I really got a feeling of this is what it must have been like when my father grew up above the general store of all hands on deck. Great community, family feel. Ira, tell us, what did you do with the $5,000 settlement from getting hit by a car early on? Well, so I won that when I was, and again, that's a million dollar collision that I get $5,000 for. My plan was to buy a farm and my mother was incensed that I would do that instead of contribute it to pay the bills that month for the store. My mother was an artist and would craft her own needle points and petty points and all kinds of stuff. And she made me a beautiful needlepoint of a farm to apologize for shaming me into giving my accident reward to the store to pay bills. But that's what you did as a dutiful sign. You handed it over. Yeah. How did you feel about that? Do you remember? I think I felt part of a community that I resisted being part of. 
later, I actually wrote three plays about family business. Family business was my field after retail. And there was a scene where in real life and in the play where my father handed me 50% of the stock just for all the blood, sweat and tears you've put into this. Here's half the stock of the store and then handed it to me and said, we need 10 grand for the bills for the 10th which to me, 10 grand at the time was a lot of money, but they were two separate transactions. It was not a quid pro quo. Is the store still? The store is gone. It was the oldest children's store in the United States. I closed it in its 90th year. And women came in with christening dresses that their parents had bought for them 90 years before. One other anecdote about the store is I remember when we were closing, this woman came up to me and she said, the nicest thing that I had ever heard as a compliment in business is, do you know why I shop here instead of Macy's or Bloomingdale's? Because I want to give you my money. And I just paid that forward to a stationery store that's closing in my town. As you were growing up, Did you feel compelled to continue to work in the store? Because it sounds like you were there for quite a while. Very much. My sisters who may listen to the show will not be insulted to know that I was the heir apparent. I think my father had a touch of sexism, even though he loved his daughters. But if he told me to make 100 boxes, I made 200 boxes. And if he told me to straighten out the thousands of wire hangers in the basement, I would do it. I later learned the trick of just donating them to my Cub Scout troop who would cash in on the weight of the metal. But I grew up with a lot of his feelings about money. He would always say to me, if you own your own business, you'll never be rich, but you'll never starve. And that was kind of defined to me as the sweet spot of just having enough, the way that at least in our Jewish culture, to describe yourself as comfortable was about as much as you would say about your financial success. He would say the best job stinks, but if you're your own boss, at least it's your own stink. That line also made it into my play about the business. A lot of humor in your family. Yeah, I love it. So how long did you work in the family business? I worked 17 adult years, but I worked there since I was a little kid. I'd go in on Saturdays and sweep and straighten this. And he never would trust the salespeople to use the cash register. So they'd have to call over this little kid to come over and make change for customers. I felt like partially an owner. Even when I was little, I knew what it was that I was in a family business. And when did your dad give you half of the business? It was a few years in. It was really a time in my life where I learned a lot about business, but I also learned a lot about relationships versus transactions. My father felt like he was having social engagement with people, not just selling them clothing. He was friends. He would ask about them, light their cigarette. It was a very humanistic situation. I remember there was a store three towns over that was so successful. They had taken over the whole block and the guy would complain. My father's counterpart there would complain that he has 30 telephone lines now where we own only three lines and how lucky you are to still have a business that you can understand the comings and goings. And I am completely over my head here now. So I always felt like When you're making money, you want to do it really with your feet on the ground and the grassroots situation. That was much more satisfying to me. And even when I consulted to family businesses years later, I much preferred consulting to small and medium-sized companies instead of big business. Ira, tell us about closing the store. What was that like? It was a hard decision. We were in a rough town. There was a crime problem and people were scared to come shop and we considered moving. But I... 
felt like I had different aspirations and I had ended up back on Long Island after going to school in Buffalo, SUNY Buffalo. And I just had intended to be there for a summer and it ended up being 17 years. So it was a heart-wrenching conversation with my father. Again, a scene in the play, I got to actually see this being acted out many times and it was bittersweet. We knew that we were closing a chapter of being together as a family and I was going to move to Massachusetts and they moved to Florida. And my father, right after closed the store, started declining into 10 years of dementia. So I think the store kept him very busy, but really it was a cash business with my father who had four sisters and I had two sisters and we really became brothers. So this was also like kind of siblings splitting apart. I grew up with the family business, multi-generational. And you have this experience, both being in a family business, but also consulting what my experiences were there. It's so special, becomes part of the family lore. And it's really a big identity part. But then it's also really challenging because my dad had to work with his brother-in-laws. They always seemed like they were getting along, but I'm sure it was tough. I can't imagine with your dad, you know, like that generation. Can you tell us how those dynamics were? How'd you navigate that together? Well, my father was a very loving person. I mean, both my parents were great, but my father was the more maternal one. If I had a bad dream, I'd wake him up. And I also got along well with my mother. We had a really good situation now that I've consulted to hundreds of family businesses where parents and children have Shakespearean drama together, or I've stopped fistfights. I've gotten hit by flying objects that were meant for other people in the room. I think that we loved each other. And a lot of times in a family business, they'll talk about, excuse me, the lucky sperm club, if you're lucky enough to be born into a profitable business. But really the, the lucky sperm and egg club is where you have a lot more goodwill and a lot more, as experts of family business say, all for one, one for all. There's a lot of siblings in business that say, well, when mom and dad are gone, we're both going to be president. And then they just have endless wars about it. And a lot of people want to be in that equal, egalitarian, let's decide through consensus. And it doesn't work. And sometimes it's because the children have been trained to be at war with each other. My father and my uncle fought like this. And this is how you're supposed to run a business by fighting together and There's a joke of two siblings that get on the plane on the business trip, and one says to the other, oh, my God, I left the safe wide open. And the other one says, it's okay, we're both here. (laughs) Yeah, modeling makes a really, really big difference. And so, Ira, it seems, I mean, just the way you're talking about the business and the importance of relationships with the customers of the business and the importance of the relationship between you and your father and other family members, when you decided to close the business and move to Amherst, What were you thinking from a money perspective? What was your plan? And you're kind of taking a big family anchor and you're swimming away from it. Yeah. My kids were one and six and friends were saying, be sure to move before your kids get the vote and don't want to move. And in fact, both my kids live back in New York now, as a lot of people, New Yorkers have moved up to Amherst, the kids moved back. But it was very sentimental. My father had been in retail since he was born. And I grew up in that situation too. And it was going to be a totally different life. But I knew I wanted to not live on Long Island anymore. And my parents 
supported that. I think in the end, there was a conversation where we, it was revealed that they were just sticking it out for me and I was sticking it out for them and we hadn't really discussed it. And now actually in consulting the family business, I find that helping some of them go out of their misery together where they don't enjoy working together or they're not doing what they're calling is and some of those are the greatest successes is just setting them free so they work in the business because they feel obligated right trapped i have a friend who wrote a book that i inspired him to write called trapped in the family business and basically it starts off with the statistic that i gave him of like what percentage of people in family businesses feel trapped in one way or another and i said 99 percent But it really is. I've never met anybody. They're either trapped with too much salary that they could never earn anywhere else or that they've been raised to think you're an idiot and you're lucky to have any job or all the other things that could possibly happen or just feeling like if I'm not in here, then my siblings are going to get everything. So I encourage people to only join the business if they can make money for the business using their talent. That is also their I think passion is an overused word, but like they like it. (laughs) And also that they have what it takes to get along with that family because there's 24 million businesses in the United States. And why should you go work with people that you hate your whole life? Yeah, good points. So Ira, you moved from Long Island to Amherst before your kids had a say in what was going to happen. What did you do when you got to Amherst? How are you making money to support your family or to help contribute? to the support of your family? I was going to open a store. My big dream was now I get to open a retail store without my parents. And the help is going to be all this edge. I live in a very college area. It's called the five college area. And when I got up here, the store that my family had opened in 1902 didn't have a business plan. It was basically a cousin that put down his peddler's sack and said, I'm buying this building and I'm never going to pedal door to door again. That was the business plan. And I wrote a business plan after taking this college course. And I, as I say, the business plan spoke to me. It said no. And I've told that to people that didn't listen to their business plan and just assumed the business plan always says yes. But then I just figured if I'm not a retailer, what am I? It almost felt like it was a cast system assignment of me. I was an untouchable slash retailer. And then I said, what else could I do? And then this job just popped up in the paper. I don't really believe in psychics, but I had a friend who became quite a successful psychic. And he told me, there's some way of teaching that you have a knack for, and you're going to teach adults. And I had run a K to six hippie free school in Buffalo after college. I was an elementary ed major. And then this was the kind of teaching when I moved up here, it just all kind of felt right to me and ran this program at the beginning of a movement. At one point, there were 150 of these around North America. COVID hurt a lot of them, but it just felt great in my store. So here's one thing is in my store, I was the head of the retail division of the Chamber of Commerce. And every Saturday and Sunday, I would hire showmobiles and chess champions and choirs and judo exhibitions. And because if we didn't do that, they had put a pedestrian promenade mall on our street, which worked in like LA has one third Avenue, but in a blighted neighborhood, it just gets a lot of trespassing. And so I would keep it busy. That actually was what got me hired. I think more than anything was the search committee at UMass. It was a UMass program said, wow, this guy really knows how to create entertainment and maybe he knows how to create edutainment. So that was kind of the slant of the family business center was dealing with 
a lot of people that had been working from five in the morning and I was having them from five to eight thirty at night. And if it was not compelling and even funny and entertaining, they'd leave. They were tired. I would just entertain them with lessons. And I realized the other thing was I was an elementary ed teacher and I realized adult education is exactly the same as childhood education, especially entrepreneurs who are not academic types. A lot of the time they would just love to be taught with something that was also fun and funny. Makes it stickier for sure. You said you wrote a business plan that didn't say yes. Would you explain what that means? Is that a financial no? Is it a, you talked about passion. You talked to your clients about passion. Was it a passion no? A lot of times when I am describing to somebody how to write a business plan, and it's really changed a lot. When I was writing a business plan, it really had to be a thick document that a banker would be impressed by. But now you can use just like a one sheet. But if you just think of it as your market is a pizza and who else is getting slices of that pie away from you and how are you going to get them? And I looked at my pizza pie and it was like, there's three other stores up here. Some of my specialties in my store in Long Island was christening communion, suits and dresses, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, parochial schools. None of that was happening up here. And when my mother, who was a good dresser, looked up and down the street in Amherst, her one comment was, well, they sure don't dress. So it just was not the marketplace. There was no tomato sauce or cheese or anything. And then actually the three other children's shops that were up here all failed in a short time after I moved up too. I'm very interested, Ira, in this idea of edutainment. How did you refine it over time? And what was your process of developing this edutainment? Well, there was a few things. There was a movement starting a family business center. So they were all kind of imitating each other. And some of the bad things to imitate was just having a lot of bankers and insurance agents getting up there and giving talks totally deadly. I had to do it somewhat, but I tried to make them more fun of like pitting the attorney and the banker in an argument. I'd create a fake case. And I was like, I instructed them, both introverts, like do a lot of screaming too, because this audience knows that you're (laughs) a polite introvert or the plays, or getting a book group up on stage to argue about a book. It needed to be hot. I would look for oddball stuff, but at the end of the day, what I wanted was everybody in the room should go home with one gem, one thing that you are going to do tomorrow because it's practical, it's money-making, it's in your wheelhouse. And so I would really aim for that. It needed to be engaging. These were not people that were going to just take a theory and find that it was valuable. It really needed to be practical. From that experience, what do you think the family businesses took away overall? What were some of the main themes? Well, I think the number one theme, which actually got people to join, it was a membership organization, was I'm normal. Like every kind of sickness that I think when I would even telemarket and they'd say, well, we're not really a family business. We're a little different. And they'd be like, does it hurt in these 10 ways? Yes. Then you may be a family business. But I would introduce people to each other. It's like, hey, I just want to say you both fired your mother and here's a beer for each of you discuss as we were getting ready to have the meeting. And just the fact that people thought, I don't have to be ashamed of my family business situation. These things happen to everybody. If I feel trapped in the family business and everyone else at my table feels trapped in the family business, maybe I can just filter out that anguish a little bit and get back to work or make a conscious decision to leave or whatever. 
it sounds like you created a safe space for really important, open, vulnerable dialogue. Yeah. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about that. And in that role, as well as you've been a radio host, you spoke with over 300 family businesses. I'm curious about the money conversations in a family business. Do you find that they happen naturally? Is it one of those sticking points harder to have because you're family? What are your insights there? Well, it depends on the family. There's a lot of open secrets in family business where everybody knows or thinks they know everybody else's business, but they don't in different levels of transparency. I also had an advice column on my website where it was very clear, like 80% of the letters that I got were about my husband works with his father and the father made these promises. And now my husband can't look at the books and thinks that my father's stealing, but can't prove it. And it just depends on the kind of family. If you have a family that really is trusting, I just read an article in Harvard Business Review about how trustworthiness is the highest quality. And I'm doing a project right now for a large company around here on researching if it's true what they say that 30 people in their organization are severely underpaid. So I'm doing that project. And part of it is I'm doing a survey on what factors would push one salary up within the pay range. So you hire them in a midpoint, what would get you to the 75th percentile or the 100th percentile? And trustworthiness came in as, I expect that, I don't pay extra for it. Some of the things that I thought, like even problem solving did well, it made sense what they were saying, but longevity did a lot better than strategic thinking. So I just think a lot of the conversations that would happen just around the table of 10 family business owners at a table about who talked to their son. If you're at a table with nine other people and half of them have stories about how they keep it all secret and the other five have stories about how they just have open books and their kids know how to succeed and all, it's going to be clear pretty soon that the ones that have the open conversations are a lot healthier and have a lot more potential to succeed. So really it was peer-to-peer learning in a really interesting way. Ira, that brings up a question we like to ask all of our guests, which is what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? So I have two kids. My son is an actor. He chose to be an actor when he was little. He also does dialect coaching, which is more income for him and diversity training and whatnot. But he and I share a lot of views about money. But like right now, he's driving around the country in a short bus and checking into a hotel to do Zoom calls on diversity training every so often. And there's things that he feels about money that I would like to get more into my soul, but also ways that I would like to kind of educate him. I've always been kind of a not a father knows best. I've been a good companion, but not an authority figure over my children. And I would just like to say, here's a couple of my findings of 69 and a half years of being alive, how I see money, because I think we could rub off on each other. So that is what I'm planning on doing. And he's going to be home. He just got an off-off Broadway part. So he's speeding back in his bus from New Orleans right now. Congratulations to him. And I'm playing this out in my mind with your background, running a family business with experience in the area of education, you bringing those together in a fun, edutaining sort of way. And now you have an actor son. And we are each other's script doctors, by the way, because he's also a playwright. 
I imagine there's some body of work that's going to come out of this that will be very entertaining to watch or read. No pressure, Ira. (laughs) (laughs) Ira, thank you so much for joining us on the Money Tales podcast and sharing your story. And I love the idea of edutainment to get concepts across. I think it is, as you talked about, this is the end of the day. They're tired. Even when we wake up, there's just so much flooding in. If you can make things sticky and fun, it's the way to communicate and get people to walk away with that great nugget. So thanks. And you did that on our podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time. Mm-hmm.